All right. Nain and the Red Eagle. Chapter one. Eddie. You have to go sit down over there. It's too distracting if you're looking over my shoulder. In a hole in a pretty green hill, there lived a hobbit. Several, in fact. But we are chiefly concerned with one, Edgar Oldbuck. Little Eddie lived with his parents and his brothers and sisters in a tidy hobbit hole amid great fields of the finest tobacco leaf in all the little kingdom of Dueling. He worked for his father, whose name was Jeremiah Oldbuck, a leaf farmer of great reputation. When young Eddie was old enough, perhaps even a bit before he was truly old enough, his father taught him to drive the Oldbuck delivery cart behind a sturdy old pair of ponies. Soon, Eddie was delivering his father's leaf all over the kingdom, which job he regarded as a tremendous adventure. The real adventures didn't start, though, until many years later when young Eddie was in his 40s. He was still young, for hobbits aged slowly, and he was dark-haired, beardless, of course, thick and vigorously strong for a hobbit, and only a little bit plump. The leaf delivery life had been good to him. He knew every road and lane and byway in the kingdom, every inn and every innkeeper and their interests and concerns. Nearly all the merchants that docked at the capital city of Lavinia to buy and sell, and among his friends were many of the knights who patrolled the kingdom's roads, who rode about in fine clothing, sampling the best food and drink in the countryside while ostensibly keeping the roads free of bandits and outlaws. Eddie had a winning smile, a quick memory for names and faces, and hardly a soul who met him didn't desire to count him as a friend. In those days, Mayor Batten of Walterstone had a vexing political problem involving the shipment of imported elvish wine, royal tariffs, his brother-in-law's political ambitions, and an internal dispute that the knights were having over their titles and livery. You know what, the details aren't important. Anyway, Eddie dropped into the Green Bottle public house in Walterstone to eat a sandwich on his way south to Ellenshire with his usual product. And it was there trading news and witty jokes with the proprietor, a thin and wrinkled man named Jarvin, that it first came to his attention that the mayor in town was under quite a bit of pressure from the king to solve a problem. And he, Eddie Oldbuck of Oldbuck Farm Pipeleaf, had in his head everything that the mayor needed to succeed. Well, Eddie had a schedule to keep, but his list of deliveries was not such an overbearing taskmaster as to forbid an hour here and an hour there for pleasures and not errands. So rather than sticking around the green bottle for wine and song until two in the afternoon, which was his usual behavior, he drove his cart over to the far side of town where Batten's three-story mayor's villa sat by the Wexford River, a dainty little white mansion with a clay roof after the style of warmer climes. The mayor's doorman needed some persuasion to announce him. In fact, the first thing that they said to the dusty and rustic looking young hobbit was, the mayor does business by appointment only. Please apply for an appointment at the clerk's office in town, sir. Goodbye. They said it in an easy, bored tone of voice that showed that it wasn't the first time they had turned away drop-in visitors seeking the mayor's time. But Eddie turned on his winning smile as bright as it could go and persisted. You see, sir, I heard a rumor in town that the mayor would pay handsomely for certain information because he was in a desperate fix. And it so happens that I am able to help his lordship. 
I would hate to see this information go to waste. If I head back to the clerk's office now, it's likely that the appointment would come too late and the delay would be very costly. The doorman looked uneasily at one another, at last, and at last told him to wait while one went to fetch the mayor's chief servant. Well, to make a long story slightly shorter, Eddie eventually got paid that day for nothing more than sharing some key facts that were well known to him, and the mayor was a very happy man. In the following month, when the mayor was in desperate need of more information of that sort, he sent messengers to search the roads around Walterstone for him. They rushed Eddie back on horseback to the mayor's house to be asked all he knew about it, while the innkeeper in the hamlet of Tenby kindly took possession of his pipe leaf and his cart for him, anxiously watching the clock and the road, and worrying that Eddie had been mistaken for a criminal and arrested for some or another terrible crime. After that, Eddie considered that he had two jobs. He delivered pipe leaf in his cart, and he kept his eyes and ears open to collect information that might be sold at a price. Mayor Batten's problems blew over without much of a fuss, but Eddie's side employment didn't wane, and he soon had customers all over the kingdom, powerful men, many of which were secretly paying him for the same information as they sought to gain advantage over one another. Finally, after five years of that, an impressive-looking summons arrived at Old Book Farm on a very official stationery, inviting one Edgar Old Book for an audience with the secretary to the king's advisor on internal affairs. Eddie's reputation as the hobbit who knows everything had reached the ears of the Levanian palace, and he was asked to give up delivering pipe leaf altogether and move to the city of Levania to be trained both in combat and in arts of intrigue. He was to become one of the king's trusted spies. Well, Eddie's time in the king's service was short, gloriously successful, and miserable. Oh, the training was fine. He loved learning the spying arts, the trickery, and the rigorous alertness, and the quick thinking. He was a natural at hiding. After all, he was half the size of a normal spy. And sneaking through shadows quietly, all hobbits can move quite silently and getting information from targets. He was naturally charming, and he didn't in the least fit anybody's idea of a likely spy. He was even passively good at light combat, if given a generous, generous allowance for his small size. But the actual work of spying was not his idea of a good time. For one thing, it was dangerous. Trading gossip and road lore for gold was fairly safe and lucrative. But being found out for a real spy, even once, was likely to get you killed. For another thing, he very quickly realized to his dismay that nearly the whole purpose of the king's network of spies was to enrich the king's treasury. Doolin was at peace with the neighboring kingdoms. There were precious few networks of burglars and brigands to infiltrate. King Mullingar wasn't spying on his enemies, he was spying on his competitors. The royal household ran a profitable estate that produced wine, wool, grain, and other staples, and made a lot of gold doing so. He taxed and tariffed his way to success, and it was uncannily hard to get away with buying or selling without paying the tax. If you made a habit of dealing under the table, you would be found out and thrown in prison, thanks to his extensive network of spies and informants. Eddie, frankly, felt pity for the small-time operators that he helped to expose, criminals though they were, and he didn't like risking his own neck to ensure the king's profits. In fact, he had made up his mind to quit the king's service and
and go back to delivering pipe leaf, when he was summoned to a meeting with the king's advisor, Sir William Sleaford. He decided that he would march right into Sleaford's office and announce his resignation. It didn't work out the way he planned. Stepping out of the hot summer air into the cool dark of Sleaford's offices was quite refreshing. Eddie's eyes adjusted quickly to the low light, and he was surprised to see waiting there the king and Sir Sleaford and a white-bearded man with sea-blue eyes that Eddie knew to be the king's naval general. They all wore somber faces. Eddie bowed before the king. Your Majesty. Sleaford said, Mr. Old Buck, you've done good work for us, although you're new to the service. We have unsettling news. We need talents such as yours applied to now to something far more serious and more dangerous than our usual business. Eddie was now torn. He had come in intending to offer his resignation, but now his reasons for leaving seemed to be slipping through his fingers. The king undoubtedly needed him for something much more suitable now, something that touched upon the safety of the kingdom and all the people therein. Although they hadn't yet told him what the job was, he felt sure that it wasn't finding out tax evaders. To quit now seemed impossible. It would make him appear as a coward. He would have to stay on, at least for one more assignment. And perhaps this was the job that would restore his sense of right and wrong about his job spying for the king. He got right to the point. Is it war, sir? No, not war, replied Sleaford. But it is a warlike matter, nearly. Mr. Oldbuck, we are considering giving you an assignment unlike any you've taken so far. It will be extremely dangerous. But more than that, he trailed off. More than danger, sir? Eddie, I know you. I know all the men who work for me very well. I must. This job, if we give it to you, it would mean confronting one of your greatest fears. Eddie felt his face grow cold. He swallowed. There was really only one thing that Sir Sleaford could mean, and he knew what it was. He silently urged himself not to be a coward. Whatever it is, sir, I accept the job. I am at the King's service. Chapter two. About the Ennings. But this story, story <clears throat> is in serious danger of getting ahead of itself and tripping over its own feet. Let's back up. While Eddie Oldbuck was still delivering pipe leaf for his father, before he became a spy, before he became a regular informant, even years before he helped the mayor of Walterstone with his vexing problem while on his way to make the Ellenshire delivery, the King of Doolin craftily dismissed one of his noblemen from the royal court for being too infuriatingly honest. Count Walter Ennig was totally unreliable in King Mullingar's estimation because he couldn't be trusted to lie when the occasion called for it. He was also rather a simpleton, as Mullingar saw it. He sometimes reported important information to the king slightly too late to be acted upon, and was mystified at his majesty's anger. Although the count had a healthy network of relationships with key individuals in Doolin and in neighboring kingdoms, he never seemed to do anything with it, except to keep up a lot of cordial friendships. Count Ennig's simple cheer eventually drove Mullingar into a fury. The man simply wasn't devious enough to be of any use to the throne. So one day, a certain man in the king's service bribed an unscrupulous merchant to gift the count 
a case of fine elvish wine. And that was the end of poor, honest Count Enig. Enig, you see, was pleased with the gift, and he accepted it with honest thanks. And the merchant's pending criminal trial for tax evasion, fraud, smuggling, and selling stolen goods was pled down to a much lesser charge, and he spent a month in jail instead of the five years he probably deserved. And Count Enig was arrested on suspicion of having accepted a bribe meant to curry the favor of the king's court. The count proclaimed his innocence, offered to return the wine, and asked the king for advice and aid. The king negotiated with the prosecutor personally on Enig's behalf and arranged a bargain. Enig was to be stripped of his noble title and his lands, and the charge would be dropped. The count, little valuing his ancestral title, thanked the king profusely for saving him from the embarrassment of a trial and possible conviction. And the king graciously apologized for not being able to do more. Thus, the king did rid himself of Count Enig. The erstwhile counts now retired with his family to a simpler life in the country. He bought a small farm with his dwindling riches, managed it rather badly, and faded peacefully out of the history of the kingdom of Doolin for good. Walter Enig's part in the story is over already, but his family's part is not. Enig had five sons and one daughter. Four of his sons had married and moved out of the house before Enig's fall from the nobility, and it was chiefly on their account that he eagerly wanted to avoid an embarrassing public trial. But the Count's exit from the royal scene in Lavinia did not harm his son's careers, and they went on to greater or lesser success in business and politics in the capital without their father's presence. The fifth son was a young man who resented being removed from Lavania into the countryside to take up farming, and he left home before long to live with one of his older brothers back in the city where things were lively and interesting. Last of all was the little girl, Zinnia, the child of his old age. She alone seemed to benefit from the move and took to the country life with fervor. For a year or two, she was seldom seen indoors. She seemed to draw life and vitality from the sun and the rain alike and made fast friends with farm animals, neighbors, and even the odd band of known gypsies that would pass through from time to time. That was not all. Unbeknownst to her father and mother, she also befriended an injured fawn, a local raccoon, kind-hearted outlaw, an assortment of birds, three pixies that lived in the tremendous dead oak tree, and a naiad. In case you don't know, a naiad is a magical living spirit of a river which sometimes takes human form. Sadly, Zinnia's packed social calendar was disrupted when her father belatedly hired a tutor to make up the job of her education. The tutor was a kindly, incompetent old scholar magician named Feligwerm, who was even more absent-minded than her father. The truth is he didn't so much teach lessons as he told long, rambling stories. But Feligwerm's stories were fascinating stuff, and Zinnia was a quick and self-directed learner. So by and by, her education proceeded at an acceptable pace. Soon the old magician's stock of written materials was exhausted and he was sending to the city for more books for his bright pupil. Her parents were pleased with her progress. Feligwerm was pleased to allow her to read her, to herself while he dozed in his cozy leather armchair. And Zinnia was pleased to escape out the door into the wide world as soon as the magician began to snore. All was serene on the Enoch farm and it would have remained so if Zinnia had not had an overwhelming horror of spiders. Now, in the little girl's defense, there were a lot of spiders 
in the old farmhouse, and they were large and ugly. She hated killing them, but she hated letting them live even more because she was afraid they would return and crawl on her while she slept. Often a stifled scream could be heard in the house, and the adults all knew that Zinnia had come across a spider. Then they would wait to hear her smush it. Usually that was a scream and a thump together. Sometimes this was followed by more screaming and more thumping if her first blow missed and she became frantic. This would either end in victory or Zinnia would run screaming from the room and an adult would have to finish the job. One day, Felagworm was giving him a lesson on the Elvish language using a small blackboard in the study when the pot of tea on the little stove in the back began to boil. Zinnia was dutifully copying the table of script characters from the board. Felagworm was writing on the board, as he, and as he wrote, he cast Mage Hand, the Mage Hand spell, out loud. Presently, a white ghostly hand appeared and lifted the pot of tea off the stove and set it aside to cool. A few moments later, the hand poured a cup of tea into a cup and floated it through the room and set it down on the desk near the blackboard. The wizard spoke the finishing word, and it disappeared. Zidia was not disturbed by any of this. Mage Hand was one of the few spells that the old conjurer could do really well, and he made regular use of it. But as the ghostly hand floated over her head with the wizard's tea, a small, loathsome spider descended from a silken thread between Zinnia and the blackboard, and a new thought was born in her mind. I will learn that spell, she thought to herself. I will learn that spell well, and I will never have to touch or approach a spider ever again. Later on, as the sun lowered in the sky and the insects of summer began their evening racket, she settled herself on an old cart overlooking the rolling, deeply green hills of farmland. She closed her eyes and spoke the magical phrase that she had heard so many times from the wizard's lips. Hash, cash, nezki, and so on, about ten syllables. She opened her eyes. Nothing had happened. She said it again, this time with her eyes open. Nothing. She tried to visualize the hand appearing in front of her, hovering in the clear, warm air of summer. She repeated the phrase many times. She was sure she was saying the right words. She had memorized them without even trying, having heard them so many times from the wizard's lips. But here, alone, they fell empty into the air, and no magic appeared, in hand form or otherwise. There must be a trick to it, she said to herself. He used no wand. He had a wizard hat, but she was sure that he had done the spell both with, with and without the hat. Was there a secret part to the spell, an unspoken part? A part that you merely thought? That was probably it. The spell had a silent part, or maybe something different. She pictured the old wizard sitting in his cozy chair, speaking the spell. She could visualize him quite clearly saying the spell. What was it that he always did as he spoke the words? Then she had it. His hand, she exclaimed. She excitedly touched thumb and middle finger together in each hand, the characteristic starting pose. She hadn't thought of it as magic before, just an old wizard's habit. He always moved his hands when he talked, but this was different. She moved her hands in a childish imitation of the wizard's elegant motions and began the words again, 
Ashkaz, Nezki, all the way to the end. The spectral white hand appeared. Zidia screamed and fell backwards out of the cart. She picked herself up out of the mud and slowly peeked over the cart bed. The ghostly hand was still there, like a wisp of cloud in the hazy air. It floated motionless. She stared at it with eyes wide, biting her lip, and not quite believing that she had done it. The hand did nothing. It simply waited. It was waiting for her instruction. Chapter 3 Zinnia Don't worry, gentle reader. Our rambling story is quickly approaching the really exciting part. But first, we must explain what happened to little Zinnia Enig between the day she did her first magic spell and the day the real adventure began. The May Chan spell worked just as intended. At first, Zinnia used it simply to smush the spiders flat whenever she saw one. But that came with a downside. As when she stomped on them with her foot, or under a book, or under a rock, or tracked them with a wooden spoon, or an empty boot, or a broom, there was still the problem of cleaning up the nastiest little spits of crushed spider, whatever, wherever it happened that the creature had met its final end. The May Chant wasn't any better than real fingers at picking up smashed bits of bugs, so she would have to find a rag and clean off the desk, or the floor, or the wall, or the countertop. But soon she had a different idea. The next time she saw a spider creeping, creepily crawling across the floor of her bedroom, she gave different instructions. The ghostly hand did what she would never, ever consider doing with her own hand. It picked the spider up alive between two fingers. The hideous black thing wriggled and struggled mightily, but it could get no purchase on the spectral fingers, and the hand held it firmly. Then she instructed it to float through the air until it was over the wastebasket. Hovering there, she gave a word and the two fingers that held the spider snapped tightly together, crushing the spider in the air. Then she said the word of release, which allowed the hand to disappear and the dead spider fell neatly into the trash where it belonged. She smiled at her clever victory. Perfect. Well, you can probably guess what happened eventually. Feligworm found her out. He caught her depositing a dead spider in a trash bin in the study upon returning with a book that he had gone to fetch from a crate in storage. He looked at the trash bin, and he looked at her, and he looked at the trash bin again. He was quite startled. He set down his book and picked up his cup of tea. He set it down again without taking a sip. Then he looked anxiously left and right to see if any other adults were near. They seemed to be alone. Do that again said rather breathlessly. Zinnia supposed that she was in a heap of trouble, but there was no denying it now, so she performed the spell again. There was no spider to crush this time, so she had the hand lift a pencil from her small writing desk and set it down on top of his book. Then the hand winked out of existence. Feligworm grimaced. Have you been reading my spell books? No, said Zinnia, who knew that that was forbidden. Feligworm considered this. She was an honest girl, and he didn't think that she was lying about this. Who taught you to do that? I learned it myself by watching you. The motions and all? She nodded. The wizard's eyes grew larger as he considered the implications of this. 
It was one human in a hundred who could be taught, taught to do any magic at all. That was with detailed instruction and supervised practice. Have you learned any other spells? No. He had a small spell book in his knapsack lying on the floor. He fetched it out and opened it to something simple and easy, a light spell to brighten a dark place. Give this one a try, he said. She looked at the page in silence. I can't read it. No, of course you can't. It's written in arcane script. So he proceeded to instruct her in the appropriate focus and pronounce the words so she could repeat them after him. At her words, a breeze moved through the room and they were surrounded by a soft yellow glow that seemed to cast no shadows and the dark corners were revealed in all their desperate need for a dusting and scrubbing. Now it was Zinnia's turn to open her eyes wide in alarm and amazement. Feliguer nodded in satisfaction. He spoke with her parents in serious tones that evening after Zinnia was in bed. At first they resisted, but at length he made them understand. Zinnia had a rare gift for wizardry, even an intuitive genius. Untaught, her skills would develop to eventually become a danger to herself and those around her. To shape her talents in a controlled environment, to make a successful and disciplined wizard out of her, and indeed simply for her own safety, she would be sent away to apprentice under a teaching mage, a wizard far more learned and powerful than simple old Feligwern. Her mother bargained hard to put off her departure as long as possible. She was still so young, she pleaded, so small. In the end, her father ruled she would have one more year at the farm. At the end of the following summer, when she was nine, she was to be sent away to wizarding school in the city. In the meantime, she was forbidden to do any magic at all. So finally, when the bittersweet final year on the farm had passed too quickly out of her grasp, her mother helped her pack her luggage, and a carriage from the city was sent to fetch her away. It was a sad, blubbering affair, but in the end she was inside the carriage, and her parents were outside, and it carried sad little Zinnia away from her home, off to the great city of Lavania, where she would become a wizard. The name of her new teacher was Astrategos. He was a stern and demanding tutor, with little patience for tomfoolery. He expected his students to work hard and learn much and some years of varied topics were required to be mastered thoroughly before he would even allow them to turn to the topic of magic, which was why they were there. His intelligence was quick and profound, and he pushed each student individually as far as they could possibly go, according to their natural powers of memory, intelligence, and wisdom. No one studied under Astratagos unless they showed tremendous potential, and the students knew this. They were an elite group, Zinnia made some cordial friendships, but no deep ones. The other students were driven, deeply driven by ambition and a competitive spirit in a way she was not. She didn't particularly care which of them would make the most powerful wizard. She didn't relate to their city outlook and their political interests. She studied and thought wistfully of the farm and the countryside but she was very bright and her powers of memorization and insight served her well and she kept up. Later on as the years passed, she did develop an ambition of a sort. 
she realized that there was no standard age or grade level at which the students left the wizarding school. They simply learned everything they could of Astrategos, and he sent them on their way. So now she redoubled her efforts, and to the surprise of everyone around her, she began to surpass her friends and master new subjects quicker than any other learner. She had a goal, and it burned fiercely in her heart, to finish wizarding school as quickly as possible. She was determined to master every topic in the smallest amount of time possible, and one day soon, to leave triumphant and return home to her parents. As she studied, she grew. She was one day quite tall, taller than many of the boys and all of the girls. Her hair, having traded the light of sunshine for the dull lamps of the library, was much darkened and straighter. Finally, fate determined that Astragos was constrained by necessity to be in two different places at the same time. He had to deliver a very powerful magic ring, the Ring of Illusion, to his colleague Bodrum in Magazerna, some 100 miles distant along the coast without delay. At the same time, he desperately needed to journey north into the foothills of the mountains, where deep in the forest he could gather some wild Etna mushrooms at that exact time of year and preserve them for use in some very important magic that he was preparing. Neither task would suffer delay. Unable to solve his problem any other way, he determined that he wouldn't trust the delivery of the magical ring to his most conscientious student. Although he knew Zinnia was not subject to the outlandish egotism of some of her fellow students, still he spent nearly an hour explaining to her the importance of her delivery mission. She was not to take any other route than the one he designated on the map. She was not to delay. She was not to make any stops. She was not to take the ring out of its little brass case. She was certainly not to put it on. She was not to do any magic at all, in fact. She would be traveling not as a wizard's apprentice, but disguised as a minor noblewoman, which technically she was, concealed within a common carriage. Speed and secrecy were imperative. Soon she was passing west along the high road on a fine spring morning, sitting comfortably in the back of a carriage in a red dress that seemed very fancy to her after years spent in simple wizard's apprentice robes. The distant whisper of the ocean coming faintly up the slopes on the right-hand side, where the grassy hills dropped quickly down to a faint white strip of sand some 400 feet below and a mile distant. In this way, she passed away from Lavania and all she knew, and in two days' time came near to the great mountain of Nain, where, as she knew well, for, for 100 years the dwarves had been building a new temple, carved out of stone, just where the mountain met the sea. She wondered if the road would pass in such a way that she could see the work of the dwarves clearly, but she knew she could not stop or go out of her way to admire it. Perhaps she supposed on the way back from Magazern, she could be permitted a detour. The westward road wandered closer to the sea and passed near the little fishing village of Goom, which sat a few miles from the temple, from the mountain and the temple. And then it cut its way, its narrow way between the mountains and the sea along a high rock face, so that the view of the temple below was obscured as it was recessed into the mountain down near the level of the water. 
but she could see the docks that extended out from the temple as she passed overhead, and the great galleon ship that was anchored there, with black flags flying. Then a loud din arose, so that she asked the coachman to stop, and they both gazed curiously down at the docks. Small figures were running to and fro on the docks, shouting, and yes, indeed, they were fighting. There was a battle on the docks. Small puffs of smoke would arise, and then belatedly the crack of a cannon would reach her ears. She was dismayed. What's going on? Why are they fighting down there, she said. She began to step down from the carriage. But we'd better hurry away, ma'am, said the coachman. It looks to me like a pirate raid. We're not to stop, remember? Not for any reason were my orders. No, she contradicted him. Wait, I want to see what happens. She was out of the carriage now, a few steps beyond the road. There was an iron railing there for safety at the rocky cliff edge, and to her left there were many stairs leading from the road down to the temple, carved out of the very rock. Her eyes were transfixed by the battle. Loud and desperate cries floated up, mixed with the sounds of the sea and the gulls. The coachman was growing more anxious. Milady, we're not to stop. Please come back to the carriage, he pleaded. Still she looked down. The tall, thin pirates seemed to be getting the better of the fight. They were exuberant. The short, thick dwarves were in desperate straits. Her heart went out to them. Her compassion for the dwarves held her fixed on the sight like iron chains. It's not safe to stay here, the coachman insisted. We have to go now. He had descended, and now he grasped her arm. She violently shrugged him off. Let me go. But lady, your mission, he protested. I have to go down there. Down there? Are you daft? You get yourself killed, or worse. The dwarves, she said, as if that explained everything. In her heart, she thought, they need me. I'll not go down with you, he said, thinking to scare her. You'll be on your own. I'll not be responsible for what happens. But Zinnia swallowed hard and began to descend the stairs. The coachman watched, frightened and bewildered. He was too scared to follow. Before long, Zinnia was a small speck of red far below. Her adventure had begun. Read the next chapter.